You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the B2B Revenue Vitals podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. We're about to get into an episode that covers all facets of thought leadership strategies. If you're thinking about getting your CEO to try and post on LinkedIn or to do a podcast or even an evangelist in your company, or if you personally are trying to take on some of these strategies yourself, whether for your company or yourself or both, there's tons of key insights in here. We also got into a lot of the details as to why these strategies often are not successful. These quote unquote experiments are not successful inside of B2B companies, which in my view, comes solely down to the way they think about measurement and attribution, as many people that listen to this podcast know. Some other core insights in here that I think you're going to want as well, some nuggets that you'll find as you go through this whole thing. So with that, let's get into it and out of this episode. Awesome. Well, I'm not going to do a big introduction because I'm pretty sure 100% of the people who will join in on this or listen to this will know you, but Chris Walker, founder, what now, executive chairman, and until recently, CEO of Refine Labs, 100 people plus, B2B go-to-market agency, and now CEO and founder of Passetto, B2B go-to-market consultancy. Is this kind of right? Yeah, more or less. Refine Labs is really focused on digital demand and account-based marketing, and Passetto is focused on you know full holistic go-to-market analytics, so there's some nuance to it. But yeah, I spent the first five years of my career building that company. I was listening back to some of the podcasts that I made in 2020, where I talked exactly about what I was trying to do, which is build a professional services organization, which allows you to get insights from customers and allows you to create cash flow, which then would allow me to create a software company without raising VC. And now that's effectively what I'm doing three years later. Obviously, the path. Are you considering Pacetto a software company? Yeah, right now it's a tech enabled service, but we're on the way for software. Oh, very cool. I was curious, like, why did you decide to, I guess that kind of answers the question to start a new company rather than because you're in the very similar space instead of just building it out of refine labs or pivoting or something like that yeah there's a couple of core reasons to it i think the first and like most important to me is brand and market clarity um and so trying to have all these different like there's a reason mckinsey doesn't have an agency there's a reason why agencies for their customers don't look at them as like you're going to come and consult our cmo um, there's a reason that software companies, you know, try to outsource a lot of the services or eventually not do it themselves. And so brand and market clarity is really the most important thing. In addition to that, you have culture differences. It's a very different, you know, culture and talent to build a professional services organization versus a software organization. And the lastly is on M&A and potential exit strategy. And so no software company wants to buy, you know, a software company hidden underneath a 10, 15, $20 million a year revenue agency um, or vice versa. And so as we think about the expansion of, uh, of my career and, and the vision that I'm working on, this seemed like the really the most best direction to go. And if you look at classic business strategy books, you would arrive at the same conclusion of that like being able to split them out, create brand and market clarity, clarity for the team and the culture, um, as well as a potential M&A event. Those are some of the core rationales as to why, how we got here. Cool, interesting. All right, I wanna shift gears. So main topic I wanna explore with you is CEO thought leadership. I think you talk about it a lot. Clearly you are like, you know, like the person I feel like to talk to when it comes to this because you do it yourself. So 
I don't know if you have an exact number, but maybe an intuitive feeling, but I'm curious. I'm assuming Refine Labs is a 10 million plus per year run rate company. How much of that revenue would you attribute directly to you, your personal brand, meaning your LinkedIn, your podcast, versus channels that are kind of independent of you? I don't know, like Google Ads or like a random image ad that has like some, you know, case study text on it or an SDR going cold outbound, like you versus the things that do need you, like your content and your podcast, how much would you say do you drive through your own personal brand? We do collect data and ways to sort of tease this out. But just to be clear with people, I don't really look at it this way. We at our business look at how is LinkedIn performing for us, not how is Chris Walker's LinkedIn performing for us. And so we look at it more in the aggregate but anyway, I think it would be, you know, a, a clear estimate of people that show, say, B2B revenue vitals, Chris Walker, Chris Walker's LinkedIn posts, things like that, and self-reported attribution. I think we're talking 70, 80% of revenue. So that's like, what, like 10 million plus in revenue? We have some of that collected. I think between LinkedIn and podcast broadly at our company, we attribute more than $10 million in net new business to that over the past two years. So per year, 10 million per year for 2022 and 2023. Is that crazy to you or is this just like so normal? Because that's not how most companies run this, right? To me, it was part of the strategy from the beginning that the way that people get information and the way that they make buying decisions and the way that they discover a new problem that they see in their business but haven't been able to explain and the way that they learn has fundamentally shifted and that they do not want to learn inside of a demo or a canned discovery call with someone that has never done their job before or doesn't really understand them. They want to learn from people that actually do the work. They want to be able to consume that asynchronously. They want to be able to share that information with colleagues and peers. And that was the premise of a lot of the go-to-market strategy that we built in my company starting in 2019. Well, a lot of other companies at the same exact time would hire five SDRs and try and build an outbound motion of their CEO behind the scenes. And yes, like certain people will gravitate towards certain one based on their skill sets and experience and what how they think about it. But to me, it was really obvious what was gonna happen. Do you feel like the new model is, I think you've been talking about getting rid of SDR or that the SDR motion is fundamentally broken that, I mean, essentially you are like a, what, like 20X SDR, right? Like people talk about 10X engineer, you're like a 20X SDR. Uh, or 10x or 50x, I don't know what the exact numbers are, right, with your personal brand. And you really need one person like that, and you can get rid of your whole SDR team to drive that demand. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that you should shut down your SDR organization, but here's, but I am challenging the activities, the metrics, the hiring profile for what you do is outbound. If you look at outbound, you have the effectiveness of outbound, and you have the efficiency of outbound. The effectiveness of outbound is there. Outbound is able to capture in-market buyers and convert them into pipeline and revenue. And for most companies, is going to deliver somewhere between 15 and 30% of net new business that way. It's effective. The challenge is that it's highly inefficient, that it costs way too much money to generate that 15 to 30% of revenue because the overall engine is very expensive. It's not about shutting off outbound. It's about figuring out how do we re-architect our outbound strategy in order to match how customers buy today, in order to increase productivity of these people. And so that's how I think about Alvon Bradley. But yeah, I would say that, like, I don't know what it, like what an SDR's quota is. My guess is it would be 4X salary. So let's say SDR's, you know, bringing in enough meetings to win 400K ARR a year. That would mean that my impact is 25X uh, in SDR at the current moment. And the other thing is that 
the scalability is entirely different. I do the same exact activities every day. You know, we're trying to make it better. We're adding ways to do it, but the costs are not scaling like they do a SDR headcount model. And it's not really even right to compare one or the other. I believe that you should be doing both, but thinking about how do we like integrate all of these motions together to get the best outcomes for the company overall. But it's not only that your costs don't scale in the same way, it's actually that your effectiveness can com even compound even more over time. Right now you're 25x SDR. There's no reason you keep building your audience that you're 50x SDR in two years from now. Totally. And as you figure out other ways to monetize that attention, like I'm doing and investing in a lot of other complimentary companies that offer services that I know all of our, the people that listen to this podcast and the customers that I work with at my two companies need, that over time I'll be able to send business through a lot of other services and offers of companies that I'm involved in. And so it's not thinking about it as a founder-led brand for one company is one way to look at it. And the way that most people look at it is I move and start to think about myself as a investor and a business owner. And a lot of people that are able to create immense scale inside of this do the exact same thing with multiple brands. There's a lot of benefits to it, and especially the compounding effect. You do the same effort and you get consistently bigger and better outcomes from it. When you think about you scaling that impact and keep building that compounding, how do you think about your next step? Is it posting more content? Is it exploring other channels like TikTok? Is it like, what are the biggest lever that you're working on to enable you to, you know, grow that audience and that impact and that reach further for you where you are at? I think it's both. The one thing for me, and this is like, it's not like strategic, like, oh my God, we're going to get way more podcasts for it's for It's because of me internally and what my desire is, is that as I continue to see companies trying to expand out, like people very much put me in a demand gen bucket for a long time. And I'm looking at it, I'm talking about SDRs and the issues there. I'm talking about partner outbound events, product led. I'm looking across the entire go to market. And so expanding sort of the topic clusters that I focus on could potentially lead to a broader audience. It could have some, you know, quote unquote, short term detrimental effects at the same time, which I'm okay with. Um, and then you have a channel level expansion. I'm very heavy in video content because it's very natural for me and it's very easy to produce, but trying to make continued moves into more written content and a little bit more depth than just the 22,000 characters they allow you on LinkedIn. So in terms of like writing blogs for clarity um, is one thing that I'm working on and seeing actually really great success writing a good piece in a blog positioned the right way with the right social card and the right headline and sharing that inside of LinkedIn with a thoughtful post that that flow is actually working for me right now. And then continuing to try and figure out and, and really dial in the the strategy around short form uh, vertical video. That could be TikTok, Instagram, Reels, YouTube Shorts, or the other ones that eventually will come out. Um, and trying to dial in that strategy specifically. And then my hope with that strategy is figure out how to get that content to work on one of those channels and then bring that content on, into LinkedIn. And it's such a pattern interrupt for LinkedIn. No one's, very few people are posting video. No one's posting vertical short form video. Like the green screen stuff that you sometimes repost from green screen stuff is what some of my best performing posts on link in TikTok, and then i move them to linkedin and they're the best performing posts on TikTok. and so exactly moving through that theory because the way that content is consumed on the internet is changing it's hard to say changing it feels like it's already changed us in a b2b ecosystem only see like linkedin and twitter a lot of people are playing in those two places which is text only short form most people don't use video but the rest of the world, and even us B2B professionals, when we go home and then we take off our suit and we're on it, we're using TikTok, convert, or Instagram or YouTube, we're using those types of channels that we don't 
you know, usually consider in a B2B environment. That's sort of the, the way I'm thinking about the expansion and the strategy. What's your inside engine? Because obviously, like you talk about all these things, DemandGen and SDR, and where do you get your information from? Is it what's your way to stay top of the, you know, at the forefront or whatever, cutting edge? Yeah, I create a ongoing, consistent flywheel of market insights. So I collect insights, I create a point of view, I then distribute that point of view, I collect comments and insights, and then I refine it, and then I distribute it. And you create this flywheel, especially on social, when you do it right, or in a live event like this one, we'll get questions later, where you can almost immediately get feedback and then use that to either clarify your perspective or think about what to talk about next. And so I get those through a couple of core forms. You get it on social media in the comments. You get it inside of live events that I do at least one per week, but sometimes many per week where you get comments. You got 50 people's videos on the screen. You can see people's faces about when th people don't understand things or heads nodding when they really get it. Then a third one is that I consult with a ton of CMOs and CROs and RevOps leaders and demand leaders, and I'm working with them and we're collecting their data in a standardized way. So I'm getting the insights from them about what are we struggling with? What have we tried that isn't working? Try to figure out why it isn't working. But then also on the back end, now we have an aggregated anonymized database of almost 40 B2B companies, all their revenue from the past eight, eight fiscal quarters and how they spend their budget over that those periods of time and what the core metrics are. And that is the level where I'm trying to get to where this is not about my opinion anymore. It's not about what I'm seeing from my own LinkedIn. It is, here is all the data across a lot of companies. We create medians, we create statistics around it, and we're able to draw real data back conclusions about the things that we should and shouldn't be doing and go to market. That's a core thing that I'm working on because I see the problem and I see the issues for myself qualitatively and a CMO or an executive sees the problem for themselves inside of their business, but haven't been able to collect the data or the way to position it to get the company to actually change. Those are some of the ways that I get market insights and would recommend one or all of those paths from people that are trying to do something like what I'm doing. When a founder or CEO or executive kind of sees what you do and the impact it has and, you know, thinking about the 10x SDR or 25x SDR, what do you think are the prerequisites that the CEO or the company needs to have for this type of program to work and be successful? I think it takes a really special founder or CEO to recognize the opportunity to see what's happening in the world and then to they themselves make the decision that this is the direction that we're going to go and how we're going to build our company today. I found it very challenging. It happens in pockets. It happens sometimes, but I find it very challenging to go to someone that has a, you know, 50, 100 person company that has gotten that far to then say, oh, well, now I'm going to turn it on. They almost feel like, oh, I've already made it. I really think it's dependent on the founder having a vision for go-to-market, understanding where buyers are going, seeing other people being successful with it, and then taking that and using it as a core strategy and how they think about how they allocate their time as a CEO, an owner, you know, or an executive. I'm curious to hear your reaction to that. I feel like what's also... I mean, you need a founder and CEO who can actually, who actually has the expertise, right? Some of them, especially if you sell into a technical persona, you sell into a CISO and you sell cybersecurity software. I feel like maybe you disagree for this to work. The founder and CEO needs to be a cybersecurity expert. I don't think you have to be, but I think that it can be really beneficial. Oftentimes a founder will be that. A founder will be a cybersecurity professional, see the problem in the market, build the company. But then as they go, they'll hire a CEO that's a real CEO less of a cybersecurity expert once the company reaches a certain maturity. 
Do you feel like this type of motion is irrelevant for PLG? Companies who run a PLG motion and it's more beneficial for sales-led motions? To me, it doesn't matter how you like capture the intent of buyers, product-led being one of them, um, or sales-led or you know website or events or other ones being another one. I actually don't think it matters. It's a whole different part of the revenue generation process, which is how do we educate our target market about the problem that we solve and the opportunities that our product unlocks and what, how we think about the world and where it's going to drive them to consider solving this problem, talking about it in meetings, putting a, someone putting together a business case, sharing content with the CFO to talk about the impact or the cost of not solving it. I feel like it's an entirely different motion. B2B companies love to blend all their marketing activities together and then measure them in one way, which favors all of the different stuff like product-led performance marketing and other things like that that tend to be easier to measure. And I think splitting them out into different, having different objectives for different investments and then analyzing those investments in a different way would be a, a big leap forward for B2B companies specifically that would give, you know, founders and companies the opportunity to take on some of these, you know, thought leadership or evangelist level strategies that don't get properly measured by their system today, but do make a very large, undoubted impact on a company when done properly. I'm curious to get your reaction to it because it drives me crazy and maybe it's just me being inexperienced and just not having done this long enough. But I feel like I run into this thing where companies think about channels. And so when they think about the CEO posting on LinkedIn, that's a channel within a channel because they have LinkedIn and they think, okay, I've got to put some budget into LinkedIn, some on Google, some into SEO, some into whatever. And then my CEO posting on LinkedIn, that's like a sub-channel of a sub-channel. So it get budget and time and allocation and resources accordingly. When in reality, I think what you should do is think about what could the impact be. And even if it's just one person posting on LinkedIn, if it can drive massive amounts of demand, if you do it right, it should get the amount of resources and budget and time that it deserves. And it feels like a lot of marketing is just about checking boxes where it's like, we got to run some Google ads and we got to put out some blog posts and we got to do SEO and we got to do... And then it's just like, none of it really works, but you you check your boxes because you're covering all the seven channels you're supposed to cover. It's called box checking because the way companies measure marketing forces only, you can only do those things because of the attribution bias of how they measure the effectiveness of all those investments. And it's just as, as clear cut and dry as that. The reason that it's SEO and email and webinars and events and paid search, and if they are gonna run social, it's a lead gen strategy, and all of the different reasons is purely around how those investments are scrutinized. If you don't have a lead to it, if you don't have some trackable touch point, if you have something like that, with digital attribution, that is, not with all the other ways that you could measure the effectiveness of it. If you don't have the digital touch point, then all of a sudden, I guess that investment was worthless and it didn't make an impact. Um, and that bias just pushes marketers and the entire marketing profession. Like This is homogenous across all companies. I expected more variety, but literally most companies almost allocate their budget almost the exact same way, measure the effectiveness the exact same way, run the exact same tactics, struggle with implementing anything new, all for the same reason. It's because of the way that they look at marketing attribution and investment analytics. And so until we can, and then the companies that are able to overcome that have typically adopted some way to measure the effectiveness of it, even if only directional and not perfectly scientific. But it's not complicated that when your CEO of a thousand person company is posting on LinkedIn and you have a qualified, you know, customer coming in to talk to you that says either through a gong call or self-reported attribution or win-loss analysis or all the different ways that you could ask them. And they say, you know, the way I learned about your company and your product was because your CEO posted on LinkedIn. I love his stuff. 
And then you hear that five or 10 times from target customers that become qualified pipeline and revenue. It's not that complicated to continue to invest. And it's just sad that B2B companies can't take the like seriously minor, simple, basically free steps to put a couple of things in place to give some of these experiments a shot at being successful by just measuring them in a slight, in a more comprehensive or more appropriate way for what they're trying to do. Is this literally just, I think there's this quote about like science progresses one generation at the time, because you just need the old people who have the old beliefs to kind of just die because to convince them otherwise, it's just too much work. And so there's a bunch of executives who are trained on this model. And so there's new and younger marketers who come in and who see it and believe it, but they need to convince the old ones who don't believe in it. And so we just run the same old things. I don't think this is an age thing. I interact with 50 or 60 year old CMOs that are some of the most like digitally native forward thinking people that I know. And I talk to a 30 or a 25 year old B2B marketing manager that's stuck like just running their content syndication program or SEO and not looking at it holistically. I really don't think this is an age thing. I think that the constraints that get put inside of a company, it's an organizational problem. It's not one department and it's not one person and it's not because of their old or young. It's that the way that we have built the way that we think about marketing and, and measuring those investments is no longer the best way to do it. And there's a lot of infrastructure. It's almost like you built a 10 story building and then you've used it for the past 10 years And now you're trying to put an addition on the side and you're trying to fix the wallpaper and you're trying to do stuff like that. We need a 20-story building and the foundation isn't there. And the real solution is to knock over the 10-story building and build a new one. But people you know, haven't gotten to that point yet where they say, we're going to knock down. This is not firing people. This is not, it's knocking down the infrastructure and the way that you look at data and rethinking that data and repackaging it and how you make decisions to make a lot of the things that I talk about on this podcast that I say clearly in the data, just make it more obvious to you. It's amazing as a executive that deploys investments to get a return to when you know that you're going to make an investment and you're going to get a great return. Having the confidence in those investments based on data, based on customer data and CRM performance data can be really, really powerful. I mean, it also seems weird to me that marketing gets scored on MQL, which is literally called a marketing qualified lead. It's almost like you're asking the soccer team to define what counts as, like you're asking the marketing to define what's called as, uh, what counts as a marketing qualified lead, which is like, obviously good, they're going to game it. It's like ask a football team to define what counts as a goal. It's like they're going to, you know, move the definition to whatever fits their needs. And so, and I mean, you talk about to move the goalposts further down the pipeline, that there are some more objective ways to measure what we actually are optimizing for and that marketing is not being measured on the thing that they define themselves, but that sales says, yep, we, we like this opportunity. And then a lot of the incentives are fixed or moved or improved. It's just so nuanced. The core takeaway here is that B2B companies take one attribution model, whatever they decide, first touch, W, U, last touch. They take one singular digital attribution model and then try and look at all of the things that they do and use the exact same model across all of them. And it just falls flat and it gets biased toward the things that those tools can measure most effectively. So if you use a source model, like that's what you're looking at. And some companies now, because of the challenges with MQLs, the things that you pointed out, now they've moved to an influenced model where we just need to get touch points on contacts that work at accounts that happen to close. 
And what that is, you still have the exact same digital measurement bias that gets biased to content syndication and other forms of ways that you can get high volumes of touch points at a low cost, content syndication, lead gen, some forms of paid search, things like that, which just drive marketing to do all of those things. And then they get the touch points and then it works in their report. And then they can say that they did stuff, even though the business has been, you know, declining or flat for the past six quarters. And then when the business is flat or declining, you're thinking about growth and you look at that data, you have absolutely no clue what to do. The data is totally inconclusive um, because it wasn't built to make strategy decisions or to monitor performance. It was built to help prove ROI. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the root issues and why people aren't doing thought leadership or not moving aggressively, that part of that is mindset and part of that is the mindset of the executives or the people that are talented enough. I've been the marketing manager trying to convince the chief strategy officer or the chief medical officer at our company who understands our customer and works with them and has been is totally credible and trying to convince them to be a guest on a podcast and things like that. Yeah, some of that is challenging, but it's crazy what happens when then you go out and do that, you collect customer insights and feedback that say that it's working, and then you present that to the company, and then that person wants to be on your webinar, that person wants to go speak at the event because they see how it benefits the company. The challenge is that most executives that are capable of doing that thing never get the light switch because the company doesn't measure it the right way. I wanted to ask you about category creation, and this is more like me picking your brain as a person who is running an agency and saw some of the stuff that you've been doing. So. We are kind of in the, I guess, personal branding, CEO, personal branding space. And I decided six months ago to give what we do a label or a name. And I decided on, or we decided on founder-led marketing because it's kind of self-explanatory. There's founder-led sales, but there's actually no Google searches for it. Like literally, if you Google founder-led marketing, the first search terms are founder-led sales. So it's not literally... So we just named it. And I saw you guys did this whole revenue R&D thing. And it seemed like you guys were trying to do something similar where you were trying to rename what you do from demand gen to revenue R&D to broaden it, to define the conversation. And then you removed it, I think. Like that's not really the jargon or the language that you guys use. So I'm curious, am I like making a major fuck up here and I just call what we do personal branding or founder branding or whatever and you learned your lesson there? I'm just curious, like, or am I misreading this whole situation? Yeah, I think that the part of it is the strategy, but there's a lot of other elements that go into it. There's timing, there's market conditions, there's organizational readiness. There's a lot of other things that go into it. And so um, here are some of the key, the key learnings that we had. It is very difficult to take a company with an existing culture and an existing an existing product and an existing offer and try and transform or change the company. It's a much better strategy to let that company be successful and then to go out and build a new company. And that was a, a huge learning for me as an executive and as an entrepreneur. Another thing is that exactly what I talked about with Revenue R&D is now making its appearance with a different term called go-to-market strategy. But if you look at all of the things that I talked about that fall, fell under revenue R&D, it's really everything that, peop, that that innovative companies are putting under a title of go-to-market strategy. And so a big learning there, languaging really fucking matters. It's just changing a word, the, exact, the position is almost exactly the same. There's another thing about like in the strategic narrative framework, you wanna go from the old to the new. 
I don't think that that is a global or universal thing. It worked for me when we went from lead gen to demand gen, but I made a big mistake as a strategist and leader of thinking about trying to to up, like basically say demand gen should evolve to go to market strategy. And that was a mistake. Some people that are really good at demand gen and have taken some of the concepts that I talk about and are able to see the whole field and understand ops and data and have worked with sales development. Some of the people inside of demand gen are gonna be great at go-to-market strategy, but it's not a old way, new way in that case. So those are you know some of the learning. And then there was timing. Your basic like Salesforce stock bottomed out in December of 2022. It was arguably the lowest point in, I know that companies have struggled to sort of turn the ship around, but at a stock market publicly traded company perspective, December 22, January of 23 was, at, was the total bottom. And the venture private equity market will trail four to eight months behind that. And most companies hit the bottom in Q3 of 23. And so the timing is not a good choice on my part. It would, it, and there's a lot of things that are confound because if it was started as a new company that had lower costs and things like that, you actually could have had a big impact there. And so there's a lot of, you know, nuances or changing things, but I learned a ton from that experience. I don't look at category creation as like a negative. Some people look at it as like, that's the stupidest thing ever. Don't do it. I don't look at it that way. Um, but I will also say that not every company should pursue that and not every company has to pursue that. It's amazing to fit into an existing billion dollar market and then go and get 5% and build a huge company and build a better, just build a better product, build it cheaper. It's easier to build a lot of technology right now. You can be more customer centric. You're not going to win 70% of the economics in the category, most likely, but not everybody needs that. VCs need it. Some legendary players really want it, but not every business is built to do that. And so I think there's, yeah, generally just a ton of learnings as an entrepreneur, hoping to share some of the things that I've learned with you and other people. When you think about founder-led marketing, I almost look at that as the point of view, not the category, meaning that your point of view is that one of the most effective ways for companies to go to market and get their prospective customers aware of the problem that they solve and different things like that would be to use a founder-led marketing or content strategy where the founder creates content, they post it on certain organic channels, and then you could layer on paid to distribute that content to a targeted set of accounts or people. Companies should do that. That's almost the point of view. At the category level, I see it like you're somewhere between a PR agency and like a content production content strategy agency. I don't think it's a wrong thing to shy away from that positioning, especially when you're early. Maybe down the line, you create some incredible business model you create some, you know, incredible different way to look at that breaks the traditional PR agency model, which fuck, somebody should do, somebody should do it. But until then, I think so falling into that existing category and positioning and then having a, a mindset or have or at least looking out into the market to understand where are there opportunities that we could really innovate to shift the category. That's sort of how I look at it. But I think your point of view is is in the right direction in terms of founder-led marketing. It's a great point of view. It works for companies. A lot of companies can't do it. The impact is very high. And I think you'll get customers that want to do it uh, with that positioning. If you were in my shoes, would you stay away or embrace the term personal branding? Because it comes with a lot of baggage and people have like preconceived notions and... I personally don't like the term personal branding, but that's like my opinion isn't really how you want to make your decision. 
Um, and I agree there is a lot of baggage behind it. And you have the B2C thing where like someone's posting about something that they don't like for 50 bucks on an Instagram story. And it's very like disingenuous. And so like for B2B companies, I like looking at it as thought leadership. I look at like looking at it as what are the most both effective and efficient ways that we can create demand with customers. Um, and this is one of the things that you could do. I know we kind of touched on it, but given founder-led marketing, the POV, who do you think, is this for any B2B company? Is this for companies who are already at scale? Is this at any stage? Is this, you need a founder with a strong POV? Do you need a founder who is naturally charismatic? Who are the companies that should use founder-led marketing and leverage it versus the ones where it's just not the right fit, the right time, et cetera? I think it can be at any stage. So I don't think the stage matters, although I believe just in my observations that most companies that take this approach are early stage companies. And the rationale behind it is because those companies are building their company today and they make the decisions around the, how the world works today. Well, a hundred million dollar company started their company in 2014 and have built the infrastructure and the resources and the constraints in their business to have them keep to make it continue to operate like a 2014 model. And it just becomes harder and harder to unwind. So I think that it leans more early stage company just because it's a core. It's like it's obvious in the market. If you were starting your company today, what are the ways that I'm going to get my customers to find out about me? And we don't have a lot of money. What are we going to do? This becomes like the number one obvious choice of how you're going to get your customers aware and get customers. I don't think that it has to be a founder necessarily. Um, I think there's many companies that bring in a subject matter expert at a VP or C level or evangelist title that are able to do that. I think that it becomes a business risk if you don't have someone that is long term financially incentivized to continue to operate uh, in that way. So just knowing that like companies give their CTO 2% of equity. And if you have an evangelist that's driving a ton of business, 25x productivity of your, your entire SDR team, not just one SDR, you have to think about how well, how are we going to financially incentivize this person? And so I don't think it needs to be a founder necessarily. I think like the charismatic stuff is a learning. I sucked on my first podcast. I stumbled on my words in the first event. I didn't write clearly when I wrote my first LinkedIn post in like 2017 or 18. You practice and you get better. And so I think that, you know, five years later, people, people see a product of me doing five podcasts a year for four years straight. And so it's the same thing with anything that you want to do. I'm starting to try to learn day trading. And at the beginning, it's so humbling. You fuck it. You suck. Like I lose every time. It's been nine months and I've, I've barely made any money. I've lost. Actually, I'm down a lot of money. And then you have many points where you're like, I want to give up. I had that conversation with myself like five or six times. Like this isn't worth it. I'm not going to get it. And I just remember back to anything that you've done for six months that has a significant large financial upside that only a top echelon of people reach that you're going to suck at it for a while. And if you work at it for a long time and you have the natural talent, then you're going to be successful because you do things that most people aren't willing to do in order to gain those skills. I see podcasting as one, but you could also shooting a basketball, on learning line dancing, figuring out how to cook. Any type of skill you're trying to learn as a human, the first time you do something, you always are not good at it. What do you think is the right way for a founder or CEO to approach this, dip their toes into this, right? If we think about revenue R&D, like, because you now spend, obviously you spend, you have a whole day, I guess, kind of blocked out being on podcasts because you know this works, you've proven it out, you're driving a lot of demand. So it makes sense for you as the CEO to invest a lot of your time into this. 
for someone who is maybe not fully convinced, maybe they see someone like you who's like, okay, seems like a good idea. Like, what's the right approach to try this out? Try it out for long enough to see whether it works, but without suddenly investing, you know, 40% of the time or whatever into posting on LinkedIn. I look at this as any other type of major behavior change, right? If you're like sloppy and don't eat well and overweight and exercised one time in the past month, then like going to the gym once a week, sure, you're moving in the right direction, but it's not going to get you to the upper echelon of people and it's probably not going to get you to the result that you want. And so I think people making a strong commitment to somewhere between 90 and 180 days, like they would if they wanted to go to the, if you're putting together a fitness plan, hopefully if you really want it, you're going to the gym and exercising minimum five times a week, many people seven days a week if you want it bad or you have a, a big goal. And so a full pot commitment to the strategy, to the, the activities that need to be happening in order to do that for at least 90 days. Post on LinkedIn five times a week. Be on enough podcasts. Sure, you might not get invited on podcasts. Manufacture it. Create a webinar. Have one of your employees interview you. Have one of your friends interview you. You can manufacture podcast episodes, which create enough video content that allow you to post on LinkedIn. Put on self-reported attribution on your forms. The people that come inbound, take some of those first calls and talk to the person and understand how they found out about you. Collect that data. I like doing a weekly live event as a forcing function to create content every single week. So put a flag in the ground, make it live, allow people to come, do it on the same time every week. And you'll quickly find out, like I'm gonna go back on mine, I'm starting a new series, it's on episode two. We did episode one last week, we had a certain amount of attendees. I have an understanding about who those people were. I'm gonna get on there in 22 minutes, I'm gonna see how many people are attending, are the same people that were there last time coming back. Those types of signals uh, also, the prerequisite to you getting business out of your content is your content making an impact for people. So looking at that as the, and it's tough, people try to make quantitative metrics around it like reach or views or comments or things like that, but really the qualitative insights, did people come back the next week? What questions did people ask? Were they engaged? Were they nodding their head when I made that point? I think there's so much early indicators of, is the stuff that I'm talking about valuable? If you can't get there, if you can't make information and you can't communicate in a way that makes an impact for people where they dedicate their time to continue to consume it, you're you know, going to have a really tough time getting revenue from it. You said 90 to 100 days. If we're talking B2B company selling into mid-market enterprise, high ASP, 60K, 100K, what do you feel like are reasonable th results to see at the end of 90 days to say, yep, I should keep going, I should do more of it, I should. How many of your target customers came to your live event? How many qualified prospects at qualified accounts came to your website and said, I heard about you through one of these mediums, LinkedIn, podcast, the event that you do, your CEO's content, things like that. If you spend time on, if you're if founder-led marketing, you're at an early stage company, you often, sometimes you're doing founder-led sales too, like ask people, understand. I think that those are like a lot of the signals that you should be looking for in advance of of revenue. It's land like it's it's pretty straightforward to figure it out if you actually have an ear to the market and you're listening to what customers are saying. If the things that you're doing in marketing are working, your customers will tell you. They will tell you if you ask and you listen and you ask in the appropriate way that allows them to give you good information. You don't ask biased questions. You don't use drop down menus that restrict their answers. If you actually listen to them, they give you the information. We get connected TV 
in self-reported and experiments right now. There is not a chance that a B2B company would effectively measure a, a connected TV strategy with their current measurement. Multi-touch attribution, your W-shaped model, none of that stuff's gonna work. You go out and you wanna spend 50 grand on a connected TV experiment, it's guaranteed to fail. So it's hand raisers based on self-reported attribution, even for an enterprise sales motion with ISP. You wanna see some of those people showing up and saying like LinkedIn, your CEO is LinkedIn. I think target account attendance is a great strategy too. I think that you can look at the growth of you know your target accounts on your website if you use some type of DNA. I think HubSpot has that built in now, but other you know other more expensive softwares do a similar thing. Like in a long sales cycle, the thing that you have is you have a, a time lag between the action that you take and then in a complex sale, the action that you take to someone actually coming inbound and then the action that you take all the way to closing in revenue. And companies, for whatever reason, refuse to look at the qualitative signals that their customers send to them all over the all over the place. And those are the signals that give you the insight to keep going. And like, I also, I think there is a very large misconception that like this strategy takes a long time to actually work. When I started the strategy, our AI, we were selling a, like a monthly retainer, but if you looked at it on an annualized basis, we're talking $200,000 a year retainer when I started doing this in 2020. I was closing deals within 30 days that way. People that's reached out to me directly in LinkedIn DM, people aren't link reaching out to you in LinkedIn DM if your LinkedIn content isn't working, unless they wanna sell you something not to work with you. So reaching out in LinkedIn DM and then getting those deals closed in 30 days because the customer's already educated. They've basically already made the decision that they're gonna work with you before they ever talk to you, especially in complex sales and B2B, maybe not in services and things like that. Sure, things could take a little bit longer, but what I found is actually, the results take longer either because you're not measuring it the right way or you're not executing it well. And then you blame it or you use the justification of marketing takes time as opposed to saying, we haven't figured out a good way to do this yet. And sure, it does take some time to figure out a good way to do it. And people that have more talent or have more experience or have been using social platforms natively to sell stuff for the past 12 years know a lot of things and patterns that you may not know if you've never done that. And so if you don't know it and it's a commitment to you, find someone that's educated that can help accelerate you getting to where you want to go. Makes sense. All right, Blaine asks, Chris, who are some CEOs you see doing thought leadership right on LinkedIn? Adam Robinson from retention.com talks about LinkedIn-led growth. I thought it was an interesting terminology. So I guess who's doing thought leadership right on LinkedIn? Adam's killing it. And it's funny because I'm having, I'm having dinner with him here in Austin tonight. So that's a, just a funny coincidence. Yeah, Adam's doing really well. If you look at uh, Andy Byrne at Clary, I think has been doing a really strong job at a larger company for a company that where that was not natural to him all the way on the come up of Clary and then has been able to, through mostly self-reported attribution data and seeing other people in their company be successful and then that show up in self-reported attribution data, for them, him to see it and get on board with that at like 500 to 1,000 employees, not from the straight beginning. I thought that was really cool. I think that's a rare case. And for people that work at larger companies, a really interesting case, if that's something that you want to try and tackle. I think those are a, a couple of core examples. Sure, there are plenty of them, but um, I think those are a couple of examples that people could point to and look at. Maybe no surprise that Adam Robinson's coming from a B2C background. Anders says, big fan of you both. Great chat. A question for Chris regarding CRM and agencies. In a recent podcast, Chris said that an agency have to be in the CRM to even qualify for helping out in that way, should they be there? Yeah, I can repeat the question. So 
I have a strong position that if you want your agency to deliver you strategic recommendations, which many CMOs, the reason they come to my company, our agency isn't strategic. If you want your agency to deliver you strategic recommendations, if you want your agency to be revenue and pipeline aligned, if you want your agency to be able to be accountable to actual results, not the cost per conversion inside of Google, then they have to be in your CRM to be able to have those insights, to be able to get them fast enough to be able to make decisions. We cannot wait, the agency cannot wait two weeks for your person to send them some canned weekly report that you send to the whole people to be able to make decisions. They also might wanna look at things differently than how your company looks at it. I think that if you want those things out of, and sure, if you have a brand agency or you have a content production agency, they don't need to be in your CRM. But if you're putting a lot of investment in a revenue program that the agency is running, and you want them to be strategic, to be accountable to results, and be able to optimize against actual results, then I don't think it's allowable to hire someone that isn't in your CRM to do that. That's my position on that. I've learned that over a long period of time. I watch agencies that aren't in the CRM pick up comps of how they're gonna measure the success. And so they'll measure on cost per conversion in Google, and then what do you know, they have secondary conversions for 30 seconds time on site, or they didn't bounce, and they are counting that as a conversion in their Google ads so that their cost per conversion is $30 when their cost per demo request is $1,500 or $2,000. And you get what you allow and you get what you incentivize when you hire outsource partners. And forever, the lead generation model of hiring an agency for lead generation it was the company's internal responsibility to then decide whether those leads were good or not. It was the, and to basically, you're just buying an outsourced business process. We need to get leads. You're gonna deliver us leads at a certain cost, and that's what it's gonna be. And as companies move away from that model and say, we want our agency to be optimizing for pipeline and revenue, just like our whole team is, those people need to have the same data and the same access to the stuff to make decisions that your internal team does. And so. Um, I just think it's non-negotiable anymore. If I was a CMO or CEO and I was hiring a company to do that type of work for me and for our cybersecurity department to block it for for three months or block it in perpetuity saying that we can't, it's no larger risk than any of your internal employees logging into Salesforce to have a contractor do it. And so, yeah, I just think it's non-negotiable anymore for all those reasons. By the way, just to give some credit here as we wrap up, uh, obviously, and I'm sure it's obvious at this point, but you're a big inspiration for, you know, for me and for what we do. And since six months ago, we are in the CRMs of our customers and we insist on installing self-reported attribution on their conversion forms. And obviously all of that or most of that is inspired by uh, by your thoughts and your content. So, and that's obviously why the people who are here are here. So looks like we're done with questions, Chris. So you can run to your next thing. Bruno's Law says, thanks for the insightful and interesting discussion. Ike says, very insightful thoughts shared by Chris. Charles says, thanks Chris and Finn for taking the time. It's always great to listen to your POVs. Nigera says, thanks for putting this on. So much clarity and value today. Tim says, thanks to both of you. Good chat, appreciate it. And yeah, Daniel says, also on behalf of me, love your insights and recognize that marketing attribution should and could be much more straightforward and transparent. So yeah, Chris, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being an inspiration. I look forward to, you know, following along and seeing what you do with Passetto. And now uh, now you have your own, your own weekly 
thing, which I'm sure I'm going to be joining uh, over the next couple of weeks too. So thanks everyone for joining. Finn, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciated the dialogue and uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon. Cool. All right. Peace out. Bye-bye. Thanks, y'all. See ya.